and welcome to the NIFA Hour. Today we are going to be discussing the art of film review with Peter Rayner. Stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. Hi everyone, thanks for joining us. Today, uh, I couldn't be any more excited to have this special guest with us. He is the renowned Peter Rayner. Mr. Rayner's work can be found in the Los Angeles Times, New York Magazine, Vulture, and most recently, Christian Science Monitor and Film Week on NPR's KPCC-FM. He's a member of the Los Angeles Critics Film Critics Association uh, and the New York Film Critics Circle and president of the National Society of Film Critics. He was also a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Criticism. He is a part of the guest lecture series at NIFA where he screens and dissects individual films, sharing his vast knowledge of film history and language with the next generation. Please help me in welcoming Peter Rayner. Hi, Peggy. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we have so much to talk about. I just want to know so much. Uh, but we always start with the first question, and that is, when did you first know that you were in love with cinema? I think I was about three years old, because those are some of the first memories I have of anything, and it was seeing movies uh, around the world in 80 days and uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, uh, those films. So there must have been, it was bread in the bone. Um, and I grew up in New York, so I was in a position to see a lot of movies uh, as I grew older um, in the revival houses that showed older films. Uh, and on television at that time, they also had a lot of movies that they showed. Uh, like uh, there was a series called Million Dollar Movie, and they showed the same darn movie every <laughs> night for a week. So, And, of course, since I was a movie nut, I would see these films over and over again. The Hunchback of Notre Dame with Charles Lawton, I virtually memorized, and I also did my little impression of Charles Lawton for Halloween. Oh. <laughs> uh, but in a way, it sort of gave me, without my fully realizing it, a, a, uh, a sense of how movies are made. Because when you see the same film over and over again, you begin to understand you know, performance and camera angles and story and all of those things. And I, I found out I was not the only idiot savant in my generation, that, that my whole generation that grew up in the 60s, was in college in the 70s, a lot, of, a lot of, uh, of, of my compatriots who were also critics, who lived in the East Coast in New York, also watched the Million Dollar Movie. So there was a kind of, of, of uh, way of, of, of judging films that was very early on. And, um, and I would go to the city... I lived mostly in the suburbs uh, and see films at all the great revival houses, many of which are gone now, but the Museum of Modern Art is still there. Right. Uh, the Thalia Theater, the New Yorker, the Bleecker Street Cinema, all these wonderful places where you could... Uh, the Thalia Theater, which is still there, but it's, it's owned by, it was owned by Leonard Nimoy, so it's called Leonard Nimoy's Thalia Theater. And it's mostly drama, but when I used to go to it, they had... Um, the only theater I know that sloped upwards. It literally sloped upwards. Uh, I've never the, seen that before. No, and so you'd be kind of like uh, looking at these great old Fellini movies and also a lot of um, uh, homeless people who, who were in that neighborhood w could get in cheap and they would sort of sleep it off in the theaters while Fellini was playing oh or something. Gosh. So it was a very strange combination. So uh, the answer to your question is I'd say about three years old. Three years old. Yeah. What was your relationship with film growing up? Well, I 
I always, you know, I, I had favorites uh, uh, among, you know, actors, and and uh, and at a certain point, I realized that movies are also directed. So I had certain directors that I looked for. Um, and then when I was in high school, this would be the uh, the mid late seventies. I started to read uh, about movies, not so much the film histories, although that also, but the critics. Um, there was a great American writer, James Agee, who was known for many things. He did a wonderful Depression-era chronicle with the photographer Walker Evans called Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. He wrote a novel which was posthumously awarded a Pulitzer, uh, Death in the Family, famous novel. Mm. Uh, he also wrote screenplays, um, including African Queen. But um, he was a film critic for about eight years in the 40s, and even though he had passed away in the mid-50s, his reviews were collected in in the 60s in a book called A.G. on Film, which my father bought for me. I guess he figured if you, if you can't turn him into a doctor like me, maybe, maybe he'll do this. So, And that book was a real eye-opener because A.G. Was, was a great writer who wrote passionately about movies in a way that... It wasn't just plot summary and this is good and that's bad and a lot of what you saw back then. It was it was very you know vital writing about about film, mm-hmm. and so I thought I read that I said well wow I guess maybe you can be a real writer and and do this, and I would tick off all the movies that he loved in his book and stay up for the late show and the late late show you know and my <laughs> brother we would set our alarms and you know watch Grapes of Wrath at one in the morning and all these films and. Bogart became a big obsession of mine. Uh, I would see all his films. And that's kind of what got me into it. And then there were other critics who were writing at the time, um, like Pauline Kael, who was very iconoclastic and, and uh, uh, had collected a work, her book, Lost It at the Movies, and then ultimately she ended up writing regularly for The New Yorker. Stanley Kaufman, John Simon, Dwight MacDonald... Um, Richard Schickel's book on Disney, the Disney version, was a, a wonderful, wonderful book. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a good friend of mine. He passed away only a few weeks ago. Uh, uh, but, you know, so those were Andrew Saris. There were a whole bunch of these critics. Manny Farber was another one who uh, had collected his works, and I got to be friendly with him when he was teaching in uh, UC uh, San Diego. So, in other words, all of these critics sort of made it clear to me that one could be a real writer and an engaged writer uh, and and be a film critic. Did I want to make movies? Well, it occurred to me, um, but, you know, I went to uh, Brandeis University um, after transferring from Northwestern, and I wrote film reviews every week for my college newspaper and for three years. And I was the uh, editor at one point of the paper, mainly so I could control my film reviews and get more space. You know, I, I um, uh, the trade-off was I had to write all these boring editorials about, you know, why they aren't shoveling the path and the North Quad and then, you know, tenure tracks. And right. The, all that stuff. But um, but that's what I did. And um, and it was great because I it was a, an amazing time for, for American film especially, maybe the best time in, 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 in my recollection. And week after week, I'd be reviewing, you know, the, the Godfather, Cabaret, Sounder, Sour on the Pity, Last Picture Show, Story of Adele H., uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Mean Streets, you know, just on and on, Clockwork Orange. Every week, these films, and, and it was like 
hog heaven for 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 critics. And then you know you'd write these reviews, and you would they would show up in 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 a big pile in front of the student union, and all the students would read them and argue and complain, and, and the teachers too, professors. Uh, so it was a tremendously enlivening laboratory for someone like me. Um, shall I go on? Just, yeah. <laughs> Did you study film in college, or was I that... was an English lit major? Okay, I was an English lit major, almost a double major in theater. I did some theater directing, um, and uh, it, mainly because I read a lot too. I, I don't think if you just like you know, only movies, and that's all your only frame of reference is movies, it's not good. Right. And I always tell everybody, you know, especially students, you know, don't just immerse yourself in movies to the exclusion of everything else. You know, you have to live a little bit in order to make movies that are about something more than other movies. Right. You know, and the problem I have with a lot of films now, particularly by younger directors, is that they, they're only, they're self-referential, either their own navel-gazing lives or the lives of other filmmakers or other movies. And uh, that's a very uh, insular way to, to, mm -hmm. to work. So you started writing for your college. How did you then turn that into a career? What, what was next? Okay, so I um, uh, rounded up the 10 or so best reviews that I thought I had done for my college paper. And I went to the uh, local library, and I sat there, and I wrote out a list of about 50 publications that I would ever conceivably w consider writing for, uh, knowing nobody, really. Um, I, you know, the managing editor or the arts editor, if they had one, and I just sent my mm -hmm. clips off. And I think out of the 50 or so places I sent them to, I, I got two or three responses. Um, one of them, you know, the late Chuck Champlin, who was the critic at the L.A. Times at that time, said, I, there's really nothing for you here, but I, but I do like your stuff, which was, you know, good. Um, I eventually got two, two responses that led to, to some form of writing. One was um, National Review magazine. Uh, bear in mind, I was the head of the student strike committee in my college <laughs> and, and, and far to the left of William Buckley. But, you know, he, he gave me my first break. Uh, I, John Ford, the director, had recently died, and they said, you want to do a piece on Ford. So that was my first published professional piece. Wow. And then Mademoiselle Magazine, the late Mademoiselle Magazine, yeah. asked me to do a, a, a critical essay on, on a, an old perennial, unfortunately, you know, why women don't get better roles in the movies. So I did that, and then their critic, Leo Lerman, went to Vogue, so all of a sudden, at the age of 22 right out of college, basically. They offered me the, the column, uh, the monthly review column. And the first film I ever reviewed professionally was, was Chinatown. And it's been all downhill ever since. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> no, I mean, um, but, you know, so that was, in, you know, in those days you mailed the review in, and I was already living out here at that point because I wasn't really getting much traction as a critic uh, in, in New York. The irony is that um, I was at USC Film School, uh, graduate film school um, in production, not history criticism, because I thought, well, if I can't get a living job as as a critic, I'll I'll see about making movies or something. And a friend of mine from college and I wrote a, a script, which was actually produced. It was a low-budget AIP movie with Melanie Griffith, Ann Lockhart, Desi Arnaz Jr., and Bobby oh. Carradine, all second generation. Uh, some pulp movie about you know corruption on the Alaskan pipeline and the Patty Hearst kidnapping was going on then, so we worked in the kidnapping thing. 
And everybody said, no, you're doing it wrong. You, you know, you're supposed to support yourself as a critic until you become a screenwriter, but you're doing it the wrong way. Right. You're, doing, you're supporting yourself as a, as a screenwriter. You know, but the film didn't do particularly well. It was kind of a weird experience in general for me. And I still had this Jones to be a critic. And then the Herald Examiner opened up, mm-hmm. which was one of the two daily newspapers in L.A., and I, I became their film critic. Uh, Fantastic. Do you remember your first unfavorable review? You mean the first movie I gave a bad review to? Mm-hmm. God, no. I mean, I think it was the first film <laughs> I ever reviewed for college. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, there were... Uh, it was a film I can't quite remember. It was with Anthony Quinn, I think, and um, Candace Bergen or somebody, and it was not good. Uh, but then I, there was um, The Adventurers. It was an awful movie based on a Harold Robbins uh, bestseller. I think that was an early victim. Um, <laughs> so you say victim. Now, do you have any hesitations giving bad reviews? Well... It depends. I mean, I don't... First of all, living in, in, in Hollywood for most of my life, uh, it's kind of impossible not to mix it up with, with movie people one way or the other. Sure. You know, unless you want to be live like a hermit. I mean, there, there are some critics who claim that, you know, I, I won't go to any parties, I won't do... I'm not so pure. Um, also, you know, you do... It's, it's just a human response. You like to seek out those whose work you admire. And... The problem, of course, is that when you do this, if you're a working critic, you um, you inevitably are going to be in a situation where you may not like what they've done. If you're too close to them, in my case, I don't review the guy that did Joyride. I'd also, there are a few other people that I, I'm close to that I just don't review their movies. Um, but you do find out who your friends are if they're sort of in that gray zone and then suddenly, you know... So not, you yeah. won't re- you won't review a, a film if a friend of yours has worked on it. Is that what you're saying? If a close friend of mine or someone that I've had some involvement with, okay, uh, yeah. But again, it's a gray area. I've sure. made I've made documentaries uh, as a critic. I, I did several A and E biographies. I produced and, and uh, wrote and co-produced several films. Sidney Poitier was was one, and, and the Houston's was another. Um, on both of those, uh, Morgan Neville was just starting out as a filmmaker. He won the Oscar for 20 Feet from Stardom a few years ago. He makes wonderful movies. I say up front, I did work with him when he was you know, starting out, as was I, but mm-hmm. I don't see that why that's a reason to not review the movies. It's not like we you know, go to dinner at each other's house every day. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I... I um, there was a famous movie star who will remain nameless um, who uh, thought the world of me, and I kept running into her. And at a certain point, um, I was still reviewing the movies, but there was a film that I didn't think was all that wonderful. I reviewed it anyway, um, and uh, it's the last I ever heard from her. Oh, no. You know, <laughs> I mean, but I, I understand that. It kind of comes with the territory. Yeah. Um, Tell me a little bit about the process of a film review. Is it cerebral? Is there a checklist that you have in your head that you mark off as you're watching? What's the process like? 
it's pretty intuitive. I mean, it's cerebral in the sense that you're thinking about what you're doing, hopefully. But um, and and there is a, a kind of implicit checklist. But it's not like I go in there um, and say, "All right, acting check, uh, cinematography." That you know, first of all, that makes for a really boring review if you do that. And there's a lot of cookie cutter reviews that that do that. But I think against all odds that, that criticism is an art, not a science. And if done, if, if done, you know, at its highest level, uh, which is what I always aspired to do. And um, so for that reason, you can hate 80% of what's in a movie, but there may be a performance in it. It, it often is a performance or some aspect of it, the, the concept that is, is first rate. And so I will overemphasize what I like about a film, just because, first of all, for self-preservation, if if because since eighty percent of the movies that come out are not very good, you want to seize on what is good in something, just so that you have something exciting to write about. I won't lie and say that it's it's uh, uh, I hate knocking movies or uh, no, it can be it can be you know gruesome fun to to <laughs> slam a film. Particularly if you really hate it, you know, right. I mean, you are doing a service. You're telling people, don't waste your money. Sure. Right? But it's only my opinion. Uh, but that gets old after a while. I mean, you know, if that's all you're doing, then then you're just, a, you know, a, a hangman. But, but you know, what you want to do, what the real challenge of, 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 of a critic is to is to rise to the occasion and, and somehow do justice to something that's really different and great. That's, you know, when I, the rare times when I'll go into a theater and I come out and I say, wow, that was an amazing, amazing film. How am I going to even come close to doing that justice? That's the true test of a critic. You know, there are a lot of critics who are pretty good at tearing things down and they're not very good at praising them. When they praise something, it's like this is, you know, the acting was stupendous and this was marvelous and, you know, it's bland. It's very hard to write intelligently and excitingly uh, in praise of something, because you know you have to keep the the cliches uh, out of the picture. Right. How long does it take you to complete a review in general? It varies. Um, you know, a couple of hours, I would say, for a standard film. But mm-hmm. you know, it can be less if you're on a roll. It can be a lot more if if there's something there that you need to sort of get into and and. Uh, you know, for the for the longer essays, a lot of which you know are in my my book, uh, those can take a long time, mm-hmm. you know, days. But I I I really do enjoy the process. You know, I, I mean, it's it's I don't enjoy writing about films that aren't particularly worth writing about just because they happen to open that week. But that comes with the territory. But even then, you try to say something new and different and and, and engaging. Right. You know, because the old rule of criticism is if you write something that's boring you, it's going to bore your readers, and you don't want to do that. Um, and I'm sure you're doing tons a week, right? How many are you doing a week? Well, I limit what I do. I have the advantage at the monitor of being able to to do that, you know, to some extent. So I would say three or four a week is sort of average, and maybe one or two of those are of some length. You know, I can I can get away at the monitor with doing capsule reviews of films that, you know, you know, let the punishment fit the crime. Don't, really? don't. Um, but I don't, um, one of the big differences between what I'm doing now as a critic and when I started out in, in the mid-70s is the, num- the sheer number of films that have opened per week. 
back in the day, you know, there'd be maybe four or five movies that open in a week. Now, there are tw- there's 20 movies opening uh-huh. uh, tomorrow, you know, there are 20 movies. And I'm, I'm not going to even, I'm not going to see 20 movies, let alone write about 20 movies. Right. That's why, you know, the, the, the newspapers that still have critics um, usually have like three or four critics on staff and eight stringers. You know, the LA Times has has uh, uh, two critics on staff and something like 12 stringers because, like the New York Times, they consider themselves to be the paper of record, which for them, unfortunately, means you've got to review everything that has a theatrical opening, which means you have so to have, many. like, 12 stringers. You know, they may not get much to write space-wise, but, but the, yeah. So, but I, I usually do, you know, three or four a week. Um, okay. and, uh, and I'll try to stretch out on at least one of them so that, you know, if, 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 if it's worth stretching out on, which there usually is at least one film a week like that, it doesn't have to be a great movie. There are bad movies that are worth writing about because they, they reflect the zeitgeist. So there's something going on in this film that, that strikes a nerve with people or they're very popular. Mm-hmm. You know, why are they popular? Especially if you didn't like it, you know. I don't just dismiss something because it's a popular movie. I think that's a trap that a lot of critics, pointy-headed critics, fall into. If it's popular, it can't be good. Right. It's a blockbuster hit. It's just going to be one of those you know, yeah. commercial hits. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the Godfather was not a good movie. It was one of the greatest films ever made. That was right. extremely popular. Jaws was 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 wonderful. Right. E.T. You know, et cetera, et cetera. So you've done so many film reviews up until now. Has your relationship with cinema changed? Um, no, I don't think it's really changed. I think when... I used to say if, if I see seven bad movies in a row, you, you begin to question what you're doing <laughs> in life. But then if the eighth one is good, it, it's, it recharges my batteries. I, I, I it's, like it's almost like I... I like, some biological thing um so uh the summer is has increasingly become the dumping ground for a lot of superhero mm-hmm. uh popcorn movies of course this is a popcorn but you know you know what i mean i mean it's it's they're movies that are supposedly considered not critic movies um lots of sequels lots of franchise films lots of tentpole movies some of which can be quite good but you know, you do sort of feel like like you're being bombarded uh, with you know all of this stuff in the summer, and you say, "Oh God, I can't wait till September, October," because then the studios decide that that's when they want to put all their Oscar pictures. Right. You know, and uh, I go to the Toronto Film Festival, which is kind of like the the fall fashion line for movies. You know, the studios <laughs> unveil all of their their uh, you know Oscar uh, bait, and. Um, uh, you know, so so that's changed a lot. It didn't used to be until, I mean, when Jaws and Star Wars and all these films suddenly said, "Hey, we can, you know, we can show this film everywhere. We don't have to have to open it in one theater, and we can, you know, it's a summer movie. The kids are out." So that's that's a big difference. Um, and as I said, the sheer number of movies that come out is is a big difference. Mm-hmm. But I still, you know, I still love what I do. I love to 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 understand why I think the way I do. A lot of people now, a lot of publicists will come out, you know, you walk out of a movie 
if they care enough to speak to you, and they'll say, so what do you think? What's your reaction? They'll email you, you know, we, what's your reaction? And I know they've got a list of critics, you know, you know Peter Rayner thought it was a B, and, uh-huh. you know, I, 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 can, I can almost see it in front of them. <laughs> um, and I say, and it's not really a lie, um, I say, you know, I don't, int- I don't really know what I think about this film until I write about it. Which is not to say that I don't have strong feelings on a movie, but, but the, the intricacy of what I feel um, really depends on, on how I think about it. And it doesn't always come out until you write about the film. It's very interesting. You know? When was the last time you left a theater and went, wow, that was spectacular? Well, um, so I really liked La La Land. Me too. Oh, good. All right. Because there was this inevitable backlash that set in on this movie, you know, yeah. from the, the midnight, the uh, moonlight camp and the, um, uh, you know, I think, look, it's not even what people are saying it is who don't like it. It's not some fluffy kick up your heels you know, airhead musical to counteract the, the, the troubled times that we live in. <clears throat> if you really, I mean, it's a bittersweet movie. It it's, really it's a, is. It's a sad movie. The ending of that movie is very sad. Very sad. You know? So it was like what, um, I, uh, I thought the best, the most powerful film I saw last year was, was uh, the documentary O.J. Made in America. I have yet to see that. That's well, it's eight list. hours. It's eight hours. Okay. But it's an absolutely extraordinary movie. It's a great piece of, of every, it's like a novel. And, and, and if you think, well, I know that already, all that OJ stuff, it, no. I mean, it, it puts it all in historical context. Oh, wow. Going back, you know, like 100 years, L.A., racial situation. And it's, it's, it's absolutely amazing, that film. Yeah. Um, and I'm very upset that the Academy has decided now, all of a sudden, it won the Oscar for Best Documentary. Right. And then a week ago, they said, well, from now on, um, uh, multi-part uh, documentaries that play on television are not uh, eligible. No. Yeah. Now, it played in a theater day and date with when it played on television. So technically, it did qualify. It, you know, it has to have a theatrical release. I understand that. But a lot of other people who didn't win were griping, well, we could have made our movie nine hours, too. Well, no. that doesn't speak to the question of whether this is a great movie or not. You know, and, and there are plenty of documentaries like Shoah, which wasn't nominated in the year that it came out, that were, you know, seven hours. It, it all depends. Do you ever watch films for fun? Uh, oh, sure, sure. So th- there's a point where you take off your critic hat and you're actually just enjoying mindlessly. Well, let me put it this way. Um, because of the way my mind works, which is probably what led me to become a critic... I find it fun to to analyze a movie. I, I mean, which is not to say I don't. I mean, look, I people don't believe that I really love the Three Stooges. They think, <laughs> how can this this intellectual guy? I love the Three. I mean, I go every year to the Alex Theater. They have an annual Three Stooges fest. Do you know, they in Glendale? In Glendale. Oh wow. It's a great, great event, you know. I mean, all these nuts are in the audience, including you know the third cousin of Shemp and. People like that, you know, and they show all these, you know, films on the big screen the way they were meant to be oh, seen. Wow. So, um, yeah, I mean, and I'm not sitting there taking notes, you know, when I watch The Three Stooges, but I do enjoy, you know, um, analyzing a film. That that's that's part of what 
most people wouldn't feel that way, I suppose, but right. but I do. Uh, but yeah, I, I roll in the aisles like everybody else, you know. Right. I mean, as the great critic Robert Warshaw once said, you know, critics have to recognize, first and foremost, you are, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, you know, first and foremost, you are a person, you know. Uh I once got a fan letter from a from a critic. I mean, from a, an actor who, who's notorious for hating uh, critics and paparazzi. Um, and it started out by saying, "I don't normally um, write to critics because I don't consider them human beings." Oh. <laughs> you know. Oh, that's awful. Mm. Um, do you have a favorite film, and what is it? Wow, uh, favorite as opposed to greatest, I suppose. Your uh, personal favorite. I mean, I think. I think um, Desert Island kind of favorite stuff. Uh, well, the first two Godfather movies, I think, are way up there as like greatest. Um, North by Northwest, the Alfred Hitchcock movie with Cary Grant is just a blissfully entertaining movie. Uh, I'd say the same about Some Like It Hot, Tony Curtis and Marilyn Monroe. Um, I'll take it. And The Big Sleep, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, I'd say they're way up there. And how have those films shaped your perspective on cinema as a craft? Um, well, as a craft, <clears throat> favorite film, I mean, if, if, you, if you love them enough, you're not thinking in those terms. You know, it's, you, you don't say, wow, what a great camera angle. You know, or, I mean, you, you just sort of, enjoy them to its fullest and you forget that that it's craft that made it happen um but you know i mean certainly like with hitchcock it's very clear that that he worked everything out so carefully ahead of time that the shooting of the movie was almost you know an afterthought for him um you can look at the godfather and and admire beautifully how he does it the camera the way it's set up the way he shoots the scenes you know it's not exploitive in the way that so many of those films were Mm -hmm. um you know that aspect of it is true of of any great movie um but I, i don't i don't think of of if i were more of a filmmaker i guess i would be thinking more in terms of craft uh because i know there are a lot of filmmakers like brian de palma used to go to festivals just to see what was happening. You know, he wanted to see what the camera moves were. I think he wanted to see if anybody was doing something that he could either rip off or that he was, you know, inspired by. But, um, uh, yeah. Speaking of that, have you ever, have you noticed any popular trends that have happened in cinema that you've particularly loved? Trends? Um... Well, I don't... There are a lot of trends I, I don't love, you know. What the, are they? The the, uh, the explosion of sequels and franchise films. I was going to ask you, you that. Know? Okay. I mean, why can't a movie just end? Why does it always have to be set up for a sequel? Right. In the old days, I don't want to sound like an old fogey, but, you know, they, they didn't do that really. I mean, can you imagine Casablanca... Didn't you know? They they never acted again in a movie together, let alone a right. sequel to Casablanca. Now they'd be doing like forty eight sequels to that film. Yeah, you know. I mean, it, it, it'd be nice if something just ended. It's fine. It worked great. Let's move on to something else. Do you feel the same way about remakes? Well, I don't think that most movies that are remade should be remade because okay. they're being remade. Uh, 
they're remaking films that were successful for the most part, right? That were, you know, classics or successful sure. films. Why are you remaking something that was already terrific? Why not, a much better idea is to remake a film that had a great idea but it didn't work. A flop, right? A flop, yeah. but, 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 you know, that, that should have been a success, but somehow they didn't do it right. Those are the films you should remake that had, you know, a great idea that didn't work, not the films that are already great. The only time I think that remakes really are successful is when you have an idea that somehow can be transposed into the modern era in a way that works for the modern era. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, when it came out in the 50s, was, was a terrific, scary movie that people said was a metaphor for McCarthyism or communism or this or that, conformism. Um, it was remade in the, um, in the 70s by Phil Kaufman uh, with Leonard Nimoy and uh, a bunch of other actors, Jeff Goldblum. Uh, and it was set in the San Francisco human potential movement. It was a satire. But it made a lot of sense because all of these, you know, human potential movements, you know, he was sort of saying that these are like pod people, you know. So when he, when he, when he worked the pod thing into that, you know, hippie San Francisco thing, it was funny and it worked. But not every remake deserves that. Right. Who do you think has had the biggest impact on film over the course of your career? Well, I guess Spielberg, uh, you know, um, I devote a whole chapter to him in, in my book, which I didn't do to any other director. It's not because I don't think he... It's not because I think he's, like, the greatest director of all time, but I do think that in terms of the kinds of films that he makes, the way they were, you know, made and distributed, um, the influence that he had on younger filmmakers, um, also the range of what he did, uh, has been doing. Um, mm -hmm. I don't like all of his movies by any means, but it's certainly true that unlike a lot of other filmmakers of that generation, you know, Lucas, for instance, who pretty much stayed in the same groove for his, for his entire career, um, you know, Spielberg did Munich, he did uh, Minority Report, he did Lincoln, he did Schindler's List. You know, it's the same guy that does Jurassic Park and Jaws and E.T. and Close Encounters. Right. So I think that's, that speaks well of at least the versatility of someone who, in a position to do almost everything that he wants, you know, does that. Right. Today we have so many people doing movie reviews out of their own living rooms, there's blogs, there's shows that yeah, they tell put me up about on it. YouTube. <laughs> Does that worry you at all for the future of film critics? In a way, yeah, because um, there's been a lot more of a sea change in the world of criticism over my career than the movies that you asked about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of technical changes. Now most film is, is not shot on, on film anymore, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The budgets are eight times what they were, you know, 30 years ago, et cetera. But with criticism, when I started out, there were these sort of celebrity critics, you know, intellectuals who were in print. You know, the, the critics I mentioned earlier, Kale, Saris, and so forth. Then when Ebert and Siskel started out, you know, they were they were real critics, but no one had heard of doing a show like that on television. And it became, you know, I never understood why it was only thumbs up and thumbs down. Because most so movies, much more. Well, but also, I mean, it's most movies are, are, you don't love them or hate them. So why wasn't there a thumb sideways? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Right, totally. Um, so, 
so I think a lot of people said, well, gee, I can be a celebrity critic. I can be on TV. I can, you know, get quoted in the ads. And it suddenly became the celebrity occupation. And with the rise of the Internet, you know, everybody has the opportunity to be a critic. You don't get paid for it, but you can set up a blog and you can do whatever you want and blather on and, you know. And I think the notion that, that everyone's opinion is just as good as everyone else's, look, I mean, it, it may sound elitist, but that's not true. Um, I'm not saying that you have to see a million movies to be a film critic. You're probably better off if you don't see a million movies. Some of the best writing on film that I know of comes from, you know, sociology and English departments and, and, and on people who are removed from it all. But it does create a problem because, you know, publications say, well, gee, why should we pay money to hire a critic when we can just, you know, link Rotten Tomatoes or, or just, you know, have, have, you know, guest bloggers come in and, mm-hmm. and do all of this? Um, and, and a lot of the places, uh, you know, that, that are, you know, well-known, um, uh, news sources and blogs pay their critics almost nothing. You're supposed to fall down in gratitude for, for getting your, your voice out there. People say, how do I become a critic? So I say, well, first of all, are you independently, uh, you know, do you have independent income of some sort? Um, also, um... Uh, you know, but the the answer is to to, to get in print or get into e-print. You know, uh, everyone wants to be a critic. It's like everyone wants to be a screenwriter. Sure. So, so what have you written? Well, I don't know. I'm working on something now. But you know, all right. Well, get back to me when you actually have something you can show me. It's the same thing with criticism. You have to have, you know, create your own blog and write reviews. There are some very smart, good people who write movie blogs, mm-hmm. uh, criticism. There are plenty more who who don't, um, and it's it's messing up the field. But but um, I'm not against it per se. I just think that from from a a paradigm of of a career, it is difficult unless you have enlightened editors, enlightened publishers, uh, who say you know we value the voice of a, of a particular critic. Um, it's not just opinionating. Uh, you know, mindlessly that, that, that people really care about who care about movies. Right. When I go to the theater these days, there's options to see it in IMAX. There's options for 3D. There's even 4D now where you can smell is, and, right, and, right. and there's, you know, the, the fans right. and the chairs even move. Do you think that these <laughs> hinder the story or add to it? Well, it's 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 a variation on what happened, you know, when television was first uh, popular in the fifties. That the theater owners decided we've got to get people away from the TV screens, with you know smellovision and and you know the tingler seats and <laughs> yeah. and everything else. Um, so now it's a similar situation, but you know the majority of the audience for movies is is under you know thirty. Um, I can talk more about that if you want, because a lot of older audiences still love to go to the movies. They're just not making movies for those audiences. And if they did, they would make money, too. Right. You know, the uh, anyway. But um, so theater owners are trying to figure out, you know, how can we lure these kids back into the theaters and away from their their screens and their video games and all the rest of it? Unfortunately, a lot of that comes into the theater. It drives me nuts to watch a movie. You know, it used to be that you oh. know you're sitting in the dark and it's a way to to experience a film and you know you and, escape, and escape. right? And now it's like you know they're texting. There's oh. they, 
You know, that Star Trek kind of, you know, the the beam goes all the way up to the ceiling. It's terrible. And um, so, but be that as it may, that's the audience that theater owners are trying to bring back in. And, um, you know, 3D is is okay when it's justified. It's usually not, and it costs more. Um, I thought that phase would be over, but it's it's hanging in there, 3D. Um, and it's it's only going to get worse because the, eventually you're going to see, it's starting now a little bit, there are ways to watch movies where you can digitally create your own scenario. You can change the ending to what's something that you want. Really? Yeah, there's there's been experiments where they're doing that, and that's that's the next stage. Oh wow! Because um, yeah, I know virtual reality is also on the virtual up and reality up. is a big deal. That's going to be uh, on the ascendant. Um, you know, I'm not crazy about these theaters where you can, uh, you know, have an aperitif and then they bring your, you know, your <laughs> dinner to your chair. You get a pillow and a blanket. Yeah, I mean, you know, really. Uh, if you're going to watch a movie at home, okay. But, you know, if you're in a theater, what's this Bacchanal thing that's going on, you know, right. where, where you, you're there to see the movie. Have dinner beforehand or afterwards, you know. If you, if you want to get plastered, do it on your own time, <laughs> yeah. you know. It's all a distraction from what you're there for, really. When I, I, I was in England once, and they have, uh, unlike here, as far as I know, before press screenings, they um, bring out a, 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 a cart of hard liquor. Oh, wow. A fully stocked bar. And everyone was sitting around, you know, putting them away. And then there was, there was the movie Hope and Glory, the, the John Borman film, you know. And it was at the Fox Studio in London. I said, wow. You know, and everybody was plastered. Oh, my God. All these critics. And you say, I hope this guy's a good, you know, a, a, a good drunk and not because otherwise he's going to slam right, the movie. a happy drunk. Or a, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know. Uh, let's talk about your book. Uh, okay. Rainer on film. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's been out for a while, but it's a collection of my, um, collection of my uh, essays over 30 years. It's uh, Rainer on film, 30 years of film writing in a turbulent and transformative era. It's on Amazon, etc., and it um, it kind of collects a lot of the reviews and essays that I've done over the years for all different kinds of publications that I thought, you know, I would like to put between covers. You know, I'm old school. I, I don't feel like I've done it until I have a book, you know, but it has, um, uh, it's divided up into sections, so you can bop around in it. It's not like a novel, so there's, you know, un- underrated, overrated uh, performances. Oh, fantastic. Um, Masterpieces, documentaries, literary adaptations, hot button issue movies, uh, you know, just all sorts of stuff like that. And um, it's uh, it's rather daunting, you know, when you go through all of the stuff that I've done over the years to 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 put together a book that's you know five hundred pages could have been five thousand. You know, and you realize that a lot of the stuff that I wrote is, you know, probably better not preserved <laughs> for all time, perhaps. Uh, Did you, you end know, up tweaking any of the old reviews for the book? Very little. I didn't okay. want to. I didn't want to do that because um, I thought it was like cheating. Mm. You know, I wanted this to be like snapshots in time. Okay. Snapshots in time, where you know, this is how I felt about the movie at that time. I do have postscripts. In, in several dozen places where I revisit what I wrote or how I felt about the film and seeing it again because I thought that was important too. A lot of people feel like critics, you know, you've seen the film, that's it. And some critics felt it. Pauline Kael said, I never see a movie more than once and that's it. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I think if you see a film 
shortly after you've seen it the first time, at least for me, I don't bring that much more to it. But if you see a film maybe a year later, five years later, ten years later, you know, you've changed as a person. You, sure. Especially when I was young. And, you know, I, what did I know about, you know, these Ingmar Bergman movies or Antonioni or, or Last Tango in Paris? Mm-hmm. You know, it's a great movie. I'm in college. Well, yeah, but I was, you know, 18. Right. And, and a film like that, you really need to live a little bit of a life to, to, to appreciate it more. And so, you know, that's that makes a big difference, too. Great. So we can find yeah. Rainer on film on Amazon. Yeah. And then where can we find you on social media? Is it uh, at P. Rainer LA? Um, yeah. I mean, I'm not a big social media person. Okay. But, yeah, I mean, there's that. I also, you know, you can get podcasts of, of KPCC Film Week, uh, the shows that I do for them. And, um, yeah, uh, you know, I try to... Um, when you see as many movies as I do, uh, you know, the funny thing is, on the times that I am not seeing movies, I'll, I'll like, give me some time to read a book or see a show or go to a concert, yeah. you know, and get away from all this stuff. Uh, <laughs> but um, it's only because, I mean, I really, after so many years, it's, it's kind of astounding that I still love movies and love what I do. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess I picked well. You're so lucky. You know, yeah. Um, Driving around in L.A. traffic to get to the movies is another story. <laughs> That's the biggest change right. in my career. And every, you know, is that I used to be able to drive from the West Side to Burbank in 25 minutes. Oh, gosh, nope. You know, I, I, I still remember. I once when I first moved out here, I got lost. I was like in Venice, and I, I ended up somehow. This shows you what my sense of direction is like. It, driving by Warner Brothers. But it was, you know, like looming in front of me like a great frigate. <laughs> but but it was 25 minutes to get there. Wow. So it was, wow. Times have changed. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for driving over here to be with no, us today. No problem. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. And thank you guys for tuning in. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, Christian Harloff, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network. We would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.